The title for this evening's talk is To Study the Self. The expression comes from a poem by the celebrated 13th century Japanese Zen master Dogen. And his poem goes like this. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to become enlightened by all things. These three verses of Dogen usher in the three talks I will offer over this weekend. Today, my primary focus will be on the first line. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. Then, in the next two days, I will talk about getting beyond the self. So, how do we study the self? Well, you know, it depends what we take the self to be. Throughout our lives, we, or at least most of us, have taken pains to construct a self, call it an ego, to represent us. It's kind of what I call a phantom self. So, the first ta task in the study of the self needs to be to examine this phantom self, this constructed self. Not in order to prop it forth any further, it's propped up enough, but to see through its fictional nature. Doing so, we then open the door to deconstruct this phantom self and to consider what remains, if anything. So, I'll first uh, examine how we do this construction, and then we'll look into its remains. H how do we construct ourselves, our persona? Well, here's some of the ways. I'm going to go over some of the ways. Not an exhaustive list, but a, a major ways. The one very basic way in which we construct ourselves is, is by attaching 
to the things we want to possess and retain. It may be an item we see, you know, we walk down the street and we see something in a window, a dress, a tie, whatever it is. We love it. I want it. I want it. Or maybe we're walking down the street and we see a, a handsome guy, a beautiful girl, and by golly, we want him, her, whatever. Or maybe a, a goal in our life, this is more sedate, but anyway, a goal in our life. I want to have a, a law degree, or I want to be a meditation teacher, or whatever. And, and again, but all these are very appropriate things, and wanting the person, and wanting the dress, and, and wanting the degree may be quite appropriate. What propels us in that direction immediately is not so much an evaluation how good it would be to, to be in a relationship, to have this or that. It's the I that feels that in the, this process of wanting and attaching, and later attaching to, something comes up in ourselves that makes us feel stronger, more valuable. An upsurge of the sense of I, me. That's what really, basically, fuels our endless wanting. What, what ends up mattering in the end, the whole point of acquiring, no matter what, in the end, is that wanting gives birth to the wanter. Grasping, holding on to, clinging, gives birth to the grasper, the, the clinger. Mine gives birth to me. That's very much behind all this wanting process. This, which I've tried to put in, in everyday language, is in fact the gist of the central teaching of the Buddha. Teaching that goes under the name of dependent arising, or codependent arising, or dependent origination, or whatever. But I'll call it dependent arising. He, he puts his finger in the critical thing, the critical step that we take in order to fabricate ourselves, and then we end up trapped there. In the, another aspect of this, in the course of the process of constructing me and mine by dependent arising, we also end up erecting boundaries, boundaries between the domain of myself 
and the rest of the world. In other words, a corollary of construction of, of the construction of me is to separate, alienate ourselves from each other. I mean, I, because I feel so good and so, so much better, you know. I have this thing that nobody else has, whatever. And, and, and so we erect this fences, and every time one of these fences or boundaries is transgressed, we take it uh, very personally. As if when my neighbor's children step into my property, or our property with Raquel, I'd feel offended, you know. It can be, and, and sometimes it's not even a physical transgression. It can be an affront as if, for instance, we go to a party and we found this beautiful outfit. And we are going to really show it off at the party and be very proud of it. And lo and behold, somebody else goes to the party and wears the same outfit. It's, it's a, a terrible affront. How did they? They are doing that. So, in order to protect our boundaries, we, we need constant vigilance. And we tend to be, not always, but tend to be foolish enough to believe that if we work hard enough, we'll be able to, A, become invulnerable. And B, stand out above and separated from all those around us. I say, fat chance. Okay. So, I said, we get involved in constructing a restricted self by attaching what we decide we want. We may not, may not even want it after we have it. We may, may, may be indifferent to it. But attaching to what we decide we want and separate it from we decide we don't want and we define as not me. In doing so, what do we do with the true diversity, the richness of who we really are. How do we hide all that which does not fit in the image we have picked out for ourselves? The only way is suppression. And for that, we pay a very high price. Here's, of course, where psychotherapy comes in. Help us lift the weight of our cover-ups. And, and also, if not a, a psychotherapy, maybe a, an inner whistleblower. Hmm? As they show up uh, in dreams sometimes our own personal WikiLeaks. 
without that, it's, it's very painful, you know. We're stuck in much self-inflicted suffering. suffering. I know that very well from my own experience. And although I've done a lot of that, who, who did an enormous amount of that was my mother, who lived under, until 99, I think, nearly 99. I remember this episode. I was in my early teens, I can't date it exactly. Me and my two older sisters, I mean, one older than me and one younger, me and two of my sisters were in the living room of our home. And suddenly, into that room comes in my mother, looking very different from any any other time I've seen her. And she starts to rave incoherently, derangedly, really, about events in her life. It was totally devastating for us. The only saving grace is that this lasted maybe for, I don't know, for, for a time, a fixed time. May have been half an hour, whatever it was. Then she left the room, and in the rest of her life, that was totally erased, as if it had never happened. Well, the, one of my sisters tells me that it happened once again, but not as strongly when she was visiting her. We were terrified. This is what I know. Whatever was happening, we were terrified. The solidity of our lives was destroyed. It was an artificial solidity. Dependent on keeping things covered up. I, I never, hardly ever, never seriously talked about this with my sisters, never with my father. And just uh, before today, a few weeks ago, I called my sisters to check and, uh, and they showed a the same unwillingness to talk about this as I had for all my life. So as I'm sharing this with you, I'm also doing a little self-therapy in the sense it's so important for me to open up to that uh, pain. But of course, who really suffered immensely was my mother the last 10 years of her life, in her 90s. They were a nightmare. She was screaming and ranting. And of course, you expect that at 90. 
But for the rest of her life, except for that half an hour and maybe a little another time, she was absolutely rational, controlled, structured. Uh, yeah, looking after everything as uh, one is supposed to. Her persona was proper, totally dedicated to her family. So it was easy for me to erase that episode. It just came up in the last few weeks, thinking about this talk, and realizing that I had buried that too. So, we do pay a, a, a very heavy price for keeping things under lock and key, as my mother did, unresolved. So, thanks for accompanying me in visiting my old shadows. Okay, to recap, I've talked about how we fabricate our persona by attachment to things, people, ideas, success, etc., by separating from attachment to what we want, separating what we don't want, and keeping, keeping under wraps what doesn't seem to fit the scheme. Let me, let me just offer one more way how we try to consolidate the self. And that is by trying to perpetuate it. How do we try to perpetuate the self for good? Even, even beyond the end of the body. Of the many ways, let me just give you three examples. One is also part of my history together with Raquel. Something that we invented half a century ago. We were living in Edinburgh, Scotland. I, I was a scientist and I traveled a lot. And after four years in Edinburgh, we were moving to Copenhagen. And I was feeling, I don't know about Raquel, this, the effects of this relentless displacement. But anyway, I was very glad to go to Copenhagen. And I, we loved it, yes. But while in Edinburgh, to try to compensate for the instability, we came up with the following idea. We looked for the best possible parchment paper we can find, the best quality ink, and on that, each one of us wrote kind of a manifesto. 
what we believed in. See, ideas seem to have some stability. But to protect their stability, we use, as I said, the best paper, rolled it up. We never, by the way, shared this idea. I mean, talked about it, but we never showed each other the parchment manifesto. Put it in a plastic tube. Then put a plastic tube in a copper tube. <laughs> then sealed both ends of the copper, copper tube, you know, really completely sealed, soldered, and found somebody who would allow us to bury the tube in his backyard. And we left it there with intention that maybe we'll look it up someday, so we kept a map. But maybe, maybe basically to preserve ourselves through our ideas, right? In the end, we never dug it up, and it just... Because in the meantime, we discovered the futility of trying to preserve the self through Buddhist teaching, Laslaojing. Yet the buried tube remains up there in Edinburgh, I imagine, still, as a testimony of the foolishness of trying to deny impermanence. Another much more common form of doing that, of course, without having to resort to all these gimmicks, is the obituary. There, the preservation is done not by sealing it in a tube, a testimony of who we were or are, whatever, but by Publicity. Of course, in drafting the obituary, the self gets a chance to dictate how it wishes to be remembered. A little bit like in our tube, you know. But, but again, it's for others to be remembered in the public domain. Now, some of us would find it a little difficult to do that. So, there are people willing to help you. I thought this is an interesting classified ad. It's, uh, it's under the heading of unusual services. <laughs> and it's called pre-need obituaries. <laughs> Are you dying to write your own obituary? <laughs> Get help from a professional ghost writer <laughs> or would you rather your kids have the last word <laughs> if you are interested a bit writer.net
The third example of trying to preserve the self as comes from what has been come to be known as digital immortality. And because you see, obituary is really pale in comparison with what the internet can offer today. A couple of months ago, earlier this year, yeah, uh, New York Times Magazine published this uh, article entitled, Things to do in cyberspace when you are dead. <laughs> and it's a, it's a rich, I mean, it's a long article with all kinds of pictures and, uh, and uh, quotes and so on. Let me just uh, abbreviate it considerably. See, there are a number of companies that have been established that help us preserve a sanitized version of ourselves in cyberspace. Of course, nobody would want the real version. It's got to be sanitized. Or, to put it differently, help us create an afterlife to please our ego. The offers include one, the appointment of a digital executor. Two, the culling of the contents of our digital legacy, including the deleting or incinerating, as they call it, of whatever we do not wish, wish to linger in our afterlife. Third, the construction of a carefully curated and burnished identity. I'm using the language of the article. Meant to survive us online and to thus become our cyber soul or our immortal digital self. In a nutshell, and this may sound sacrilegious, but anyway, we are being offered a technological proxy for the space of heaven. And according to the article, business is thriving. <laughs> so, enough about the construction itself. So, I've gone over a variety of ways in which we do that, with which we create a phantom self or a posited immortal self. Now, having deconstructed this phantom, let's see whether anything, if, what, if anything, remains that's authentic and unfabricated. I'd say one thing that is with us and remains with us throughout our lives, at least, for real, is our awareness. The awareness of our body and the awareness of our, of our mind. Except, of course, it's not really a thing. It's mostly, more, mostly a verb, a process, a flow of experiences. 
And that's absolutely authentic. Experiences arise, stay for a while, and pass away. We simply witness them. The good thing about this flowing uh, that we witness is it is totally useless as building materials to construct itself. Because the things that are impermanent in constant flux. Properly understood, awareness visits us every time as if for the first time. It does not filter the moment through the screen of the past. It's there. Every moment is there. And the next moment is there. Not frozen in a solid self of whatever form, but because it flows. And it's unprotected because it has nothing to hide. Every time I, I look in this direction, what pops up in my mind is our great-granddaughter, Zenny, two years old now, roughly. And, and he loves to break things and innovate, and she's not that good at preserving anything. Thank God. She, every time she reminds me of the passage of the Buddhist scriptures, where the Buddha praises the little boys and girls on the beach uh, who play with the sand and, and are free from lust and craving. Because they, they build castles and then they have no compunctions about destroying them and scattering their remains, you know. So beautiful that they build the castles, but they don't cling to them. Beautiful that we, however we do, we build our, our ability, we go to school, we, we enter a relationship, we even buy clothing, whatever it's appropriate, wonderful. But we are ready to let it go as well. if we are as innocent as Zeni, as innocent as these children who built those castles, you know? If we are, if we're ready to do that, and of course we have a whole, a whole lifetime of education countering that, holding onto this, holding onto that, but if we're ready to open the doors of this, then the doors of unconditional friendship with life can swing open. Which brings me to an account by a woman who I don't know much about. She wrote this in uh, Turning Wheel, mm. publication 
Peace Fellowship, Buddhist Peace Fellowship, I think. Anyway, her name is Leah Saigon Shinraku. And she's a therapist in San Francisco. And she practices meditation. And she says that one day, after sitting in meditation, she fainted. Wow, she said, something is going on. And here's an account of what follows, followed. She says, I rested for a few hours, decided that I did not need to call a doctor, and prepared a pot of peppermint tea. I'm sure any other kind of tea would have done. <laughs> There's not a publicity for peppermint tea. <laughs> I set the teapot on my desk next to my notebook and pen. And then I did something quite unusual. I put out two cups. I had the feeling that my fainting was a signal that a not heard part of me, not heard part of me, was speaking without words. In the same way that I might invite a friend to tea, I invited this not heard part of to tea. I let it know that I was now receptive to what it had to communicate to me. I filled each cup and sat quietly. I sipped from one cup and put it down. I reached for the second cup and I took a sip. I picked up my pen and I wrote. What followed was a dialogue between my everyday self and this not hurt part of me. Through this process, I began to listen to what I had been ignoring. Until then, I had made little space for any feelings or needs that conflicted with my vision of how my life should look. I had been unable to see that I was compromising parts of myself in the service of an idea of rightness. In listening to this not heard part, I discover that ignoring any one being, including myself, for the benefit of all being, beings does not work. I had to acknowledge that although, although my intention was to act compassionately and do not harm, I was leaving myself out. Meaning, really, I was leaving parts of myself out. So, the constructed self can be very neat, very structured, very secure, 
that it doesn't really work. We need to allow ourselves flexibility, changeability, vulnerability. So let me reconnect with the lines of uh, Dogen's poem, the first two lines. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. I've tried to do that today. Second line. To study the self is to forget the self. What Dogen means, of course, is to forget the phantom self, the fabricated self. And the forgetting the fabricated self thing is a central theme of this talk. And I will continue tomorrow, but tomorrow I will be focusing on the second line, namely the forgetting the self. And as I hope to have made clear today, and I will continue to do tomorrow, to study for Dogen and for us, or for me, does not mean to, to study the self intellectually, but rather to become intimate, to become familiar with ourselves. And so, while sitting in meditation in this room, that is our job. That is what we do. We explore ways of becoming intimate with ourselves in each moment. Letting this sense of being permeate us. It's not what we used to do. So that's the difficulty. It's very simple, but not, sim not easy. Simple, but not easy. And let's just... Uh, do that right now, just for a few moments, uh, sitting in silence. Then a longer sit will follow. I'll ring the bell, beautiful bell, by the way. <laughs> 